You're listening to the Big Cast C-Suite Edition, your source for leadership insights and inspiration with John Jan Clays. This episode of C-Suite Interviews is made possible by the generous support of Kony, a leader in enterprise mobility and applications to drive digital transformation. Welcome to this edition of C-Suite Interviews. I'm your host, John Janklays, and this is a monthly podcast, which you can find on the Big Cast Network on the last Thursday of every month. As a matter of fact, when you're wanting to listen to either John Best, Ann Leg, Glenn Servati, or myself, you can go to the iTunes stores. You can download the Big Cast app that is now available, and anytime one of our shows are ready for you, you'll be prompted on the app to listen to the show, or if you like, you can come to the Big Cast Network website and download the episodes directly from there. I also want to say thank you to those of you who have reached out and provided comments that you're enjoying the podcast, and particularly I've got feedback that you're enjoying hearing from leaders from across the business spectrum. So maybe hearing from a leader from manufacturing, maybe somebody from financial services, maybe somebody again from a technology company. And um, I think that's useful too. I, I agree with you that we can learn something from every industry, how they're dealing with common themes of, for example, how are you digitizing your business? How are you changing your culture to be more agile and more responsive in a world where things seem to be changing so quickly? I've also heard that you've enjoyed uh, the interviews that we've had with consultants and with the executive coaches, so we'll continue to do that. And maybe that's a good segue into today's episode. Uh, today, we're going to talk to Professor Jenny Durock. Uh, Jenny is the dean of the Drucker Business School at Claremont College. And uh, if you don't know, our universities are a great resource for any leader. Um, I met Jenny about five years ago. We were working through a relationship pricing program decision. We contacted Jenny, and she just shed a bunch of light and experience in helping us find our way through that decision. And, you know, all your universities that are around you, if you have a business problem or opportunity, if you've not done so, make connections with your local universities, or certainly if you're in Southern California with the with the Drucker Business School. Many of the universities have uh, teaching professors who are also doing consulting and work with firms. And, you know, a lot of times you can get consulting done for tremendous value compared to what you might pay for a white shoe firm. So establishing an ongoing relationship with universities is a pretty good strategy for a leader. In today's interview with Jenny, you're going to hear her talk about her agenda for the school, and she's going to talk through five points that I think are interesting, whether or not you're running a university, just to think about running your enterprise, if those five things should be important to you, too. We're also going to hear about her experience as an author, as a speaker who travels the world and doing speaking internationally, about her passion for some work about how enterprises have a big impact on society and how that need is actually growing for us to step up and be thoughtful about that work. You're also going to hear from somebody who is just extremely bright, humble, and somebody you'd want to hang around with. Don't let the British accent fool you. Uh, Jenny likes to walk on the beach, have a beer, and watch rugby games. So um, I call her uh, Professor Jenny. And so without any further delay, here's my interview. Jenny, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm great. Thank you, John. Well, you know what? I was in our introduction talking a little bit about how we met and our working relationship, and you so generously agreed to be on the show, so I really appreciate it. And 
I'm anxious for our audience to get to know you. And if you don't mind, maybe just take two to three minutes and tell our listeners about your professional journey and then the role that you're in now, I think is pretty exciting. I, I love questions when I'm asked to talk about my professional journey because it's been a winding path and I think sometimes I've gone around in circles and back on the path or maybe a different path but I am an academic uh, and with that means I collect degrees for a living so so I've, I've travelled around the world collecting degrees but probably more importantly too I began in practice and I began in a traditional brand management role and then I moved into consulting on my way to an academic career in different parts of my history, I've often gravitated toward positions of leadership. For example, in New Zealand, I got tapped by my father, which is good and bad. I love my dad, but you know, working for a family business was interesting, and I helped him run a supply chain consulting firm. And I was only 28, thought I knew everything, managed a team of engineers who I thought were old, but they were probably only about 40. They <laughs> seemed old to me at the time. <laughs> and it was really interesting. It was a real baptism by fire, you know, running a consulting practice with a bunch of older people, you know, father's daughter. And it was around the time of the share market crash of the late 80s, so, so it was a really tough time to be consulting. I moved into an academic career, and, and through that I've had positions of leadership. So, so in New Zealand, for example, I, I set up the first Masters in Entrepreneurship and, you know, set up an incubator to develop businesses within a region that wanted to retain talent. It was an economic development position. And then I came to the United States in 2004, moved my husband and my children and put our life into a 20-foot container and immigrated <laughs> and, and you know, came here and, and allowed the institution I work for to set my clock back to zero. But I've worked really hard and, and got to a position now where I'm running the Drucker School and it's a position I'm really honoured and privileged to hold. The opportunity isn't wasted on me. I, I've grown up listening to my father actually speak about Peter Drucker's work and, you know, I myself and I certainly knew some of his work before I came here, but this is a, an incredibly important role for me personally and professionally, and it's a chance to transform and put my own mark on a school that has incredible reputation. Yeah, so that's probably a good place to move to next. So in your new role, what is the focus the next 12 to 18 months? What are you hoping <laughs> to accomplish as Dean? And I know it's more than one thing, so tell us a little bit about those things. So, so it's a, I love this question. I'm smiling as you answered it for a reason. <laughs> I, I, for a while, I called myself a level one leader, level one dean. I was like, woohoo, yeah. <laughs> there's so many awesome and exciting things I can do. And, and again, it's a position that I'm privileged to hold. But then I've been the dean now since December 1st, so, you know, six or seven or maybe it's eight months. I, I actually don't stop and count, but it feels like a long time sometimes, and other times it doesn't. But when I got into the role, I thought I knew the role well which is an interesting observation because some of your listeners would be internal promotions and some people come in from the outside. I've been actually quite shocked that even though I've been here since 2004, so 13 years, that I'm seeing the business differently as a leader of an organisation. And, you know, it was easy when I was a, you know, a faculty member, I could moan and complain and demand resources <laughs> for this and why aren't you doing that? But now I'm seeing it differently. So the difference for me is that, like, like any business, we have a limited set of resources and assets. So we're having to place our bets and figure out how we allocate the resources we have 
But in addition to that, again, as with many listeners of this podcast, our market's changed and our headwinds are really strong and we're in a highly competitive market. We have technology that's disrupted our market. We are counter-cyclical to the economy. So when unemployment is low or employment is high, people don't come back to school. In addition to that, we've got, for the right reasons, a lot of discussion around student debt and whether people should take on more debt to go to grad school. So the whole return on investment argument is being asked. So I got to level two de- you know, leadership quite quickly. I, I don't know, if I'm making up the levels, but um, <laughs> I got to level two quite quickly when I thought, oh my, you know, the headwinds are strong, the market conditions are, are, are tougher than I thought. And then you see the internal headwinds, you know, the, we all have them, the structure that we put in, inside, you know, there are good and bad things with any structure. And then I really realized just how much I needed to do. So a long answer to your question and John actually is that I, I you know thinking that I could do A and now I realize I have to really focus on B and so for me in the short term I'm really getting back to basics and I, I'm a firm believer from a strategic point of view that you shouldn't go jumping off to new and different things until you can honestly truthfully, truthfully say that you're executing around the core business as well as you possibly can now having said that the core business often shifts so, so part of my my um, answer to your question is that we are spending the next six to twelve months going right back to foundational basics, asking ourselves the questions of who are we serving, what do they value, how do we implement a product portfolio strategy with added value services that meet the needs of our market, get that right, and then we'll start looking at the periphery to look at some additional things that we can add. So my list, my list is long, and if I stop and think about what I have to do, I get overwhelmed. <laughs> but, but thankfully, I normally just get moving on. You know, the, I've got a plan in place now that will guide me, and I've got support from our stakeholders, but we do have some work to do. Yeah, you know, and what you were saying, Ginny, I could hear several things coming through. I see your, your marketing and your innovation background, helping to have that fresh set of eyes on on what the school might offer. But I also heard in there, you know, who's our customer? What do they value? I hear Drucker's five questions too. So what a great marriage of those two things to come together with the, with the new direction of the school. And at the end of the day, you're turning out leaders for the future. And I'm wondering from and, your perspective, Jenny, what are you thinking about? Is like, what, is, what does good leadership look like now, you know, in our, in our new reality? And, and what do you think about that? Leadership, I, I think leadership's a really interesting term. And I think, you know, when we go back to the way you framed the question about who are we training, who are our customers, if we're looking at younger, uh, actually, I don't even like using the word younger, less experienced, because, uh, you know, even now our career paths are really quite different. But what we're looking for are people who can. You know, at a more junior level who can make research or data-informed decisions, and that's what we're trying to train. So if you look at business analytics, for example, it can't just be data for the sake of data. We need to train people who can feed into strategic decision-making that, that, that need to be made and can see the use of data in context. As we get to the middle of our careers, we are the people making decisions. As we get to the top of our careers, we need to enable other people to make decisions. So I think in terms of 
just understanding who our customers are across the, the, the spectrum. But I think in terms of, I mean, there are lots of definitions of good leaders, and I'm, you know, I have my own point of view, but what we're training for, we look at five different characteristics that we, we're trying to enable. And we borrow again from Drucker. We look at the Drucker School of Thought, and there are five principles that Drucker taught us that, well, there are many principles. We've distilled them into five buckets. We have a strong belief that leaders have to pay attention to a functioning society. And, and we need to look outside the boundaries of our organisations and pay attention to what we do to and for society. We're employers, we're neighbours, we're taxpayers, we're customers. And, and it's not good enough just to look at our business with an isolation. And this is a tough conversation for many people to have. For example, if we look at unemployment or underemployment and we look at disenfranchised groups of society within our neighbourhood we could say we're not our problem you know it doesn't impact us well actually it doesn't it should and even though we have discussions about poverty at national level you know what can we do as business leaders to impact our neighbourhoods to make them a, a better functioning place you know, do we have that discussion about what should we pay people do we have that discussion about providing opportunities for people who have been marked marginalised somehow by society, and that that doesn't it doesn't take much to be marginalised by society. It's not you know it's not it's it's, it's not the obvious marginal groups. Number two, we believe that we should lead through people, and and a good leader should look at people and look at the assets and the skills and the the, the gifts that each person brings. We should lead through people. We need to embrace diversity, treat people with respect, leverage the talent of those around us. Number three, we believe that if we can't manage ourselves, we can't manage other people. So we pay a lot of attention to self-management. Number four, we, we like to hold people accountable for results. So we believe in driving accountability right down through the organisation, making people own the results that they're going to be on the hook, if you will, to, to provide. And finally, we, we believe in lifelong learning and the need to look across transdisciplinary boundaries. You know, it's not good enough now to just solve a marketing problem by just looking at the marketing literature. You know, we might need to look at history or philosophy or religion or sociology or psychology to help us solve some of the most complex problems that we deal with as managers and leaders. So, you know, there are lots of different ways of looking at leadership, but at the Druggist School, we, we try and inspire people to, to check the boxes across these five areas and, of course, be well-trained in functional areas that you're representing as well. I really like those five lenses that you gave us to think about Jenny, I know that you're particularly interested in some work and, and you're starting to develop some thoughts around the United Nations um, Sustainability Development Goals for 2030. Um, and you and I share a passion around, you know, helping our, our young students kind of bridging this idea of who leaders are from self to society. You know, um, tell our listeners a little bit about this work, because I don't know that many folks know about this initiative and tell us why you're so interested in it. It's a great question. So I'm going to give you a bit of a jumbled answer to this, yeah. but there's a, there's, a, there's a method in my jumbled madness. <laughs> so so a year ago, I was not the dean, and I was uh, – we come to career crossroads, and I was about to write the next chapter of my career, which was, in this case, I decided to go back to research and, and go back to some of the work I'd done for quite a long time. And so I, I swing between macroeconomic policy and strategy. That's kind of – you know, sometimes I love economics, and then I get really sick 
extrovert and I look at strategy and, uh, you yeah, know, yeah. that's just what I do. But anyway, I, I was thinking about, I'd, I'd taken, actually, it's a really interesting story. Well, I hope it is. <laughs> so I'd taken a group of MBA students from the Drucker School to New Zealand on a, a four-credit study trip. And I was really inspired. I mean, of course, I love going back to New Zealand, but I'd, I saw a change and I was looking at New Zealand business practices through the business lens, not just going back to visit friends and family, but we were doing site visits. And those of you who know New Zealand know that we do have an indigenous population called the Maori. And and even though I come from a British background, and so you know I'm quite aware that my ancestors were the ones who took the land and the, the sea and the air away from Maori, New Zealand's done a reasonably good job at repatriating resources back to Maori. But what really got me was how sustainable business practices had infused across mainstream business practice in New Zealand. So I came away from that thing, oh, this is actually really interesting, and I haven't seen this happening in the United States. So I you know, did what an academic does, and I got back, and I had a look at what research was going around, what was happening, and I, and I started paying close attention to what the United Nations are doing. And so I thought, well, this is interesting too. Let me go back to school. So I went back to Bonn, Germany, to the United Nations College last August. My intention was to go in as a student and just to learn and listen. But of course, they found out I was going and they said, could you speak? So I thought, okay, fine. And, and But that was actually a gift too. That was a blessing because by having to prepare a speech before I went, it forced me to really think about what the United Nations was doing. And in the passage of getting prepared, I realized that what the United Nations is doing is actually a more contemporary version of what Drucker wrote about 1942. So in 1942, he wrote about functioning societies, and it goes back to what I was telling the listeners about the, the, the importance of a functioning society. And he was writing in 1942 through the world, you know, World War II, the rise of fascism and Hitler's in power, and he was looking around his world and saying, this is really interesting that, that people need to have status and purpose and meaning. And the reason Drucker got involved in organizations and management was not his first love. He actually saw organizations as a place that gave people purpose and meaning and status and function. And so that's how we got to studying management. So, you know, what I found, my fascinating you know, take on all of this is I saw this work that the United Nations is doing today, but I thought, hang on a minute, Drucker was writing about this in 1942. And those of you of the listeners who know Drucker's work will know that he was writing about practice of management in 1954, you know, the effective executive in the 1950s, and we think we're coming up with new things, but no, actually, he wrote about them before. So anyway, roll the clock forward. I was actually in New York last week um, because the United Nations was having the report out. 193 countries and their ambassadors come to New York to talk about what they've done within the last 12 months to advance their economies uh, around the goals, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And I was having a, a think tank off to the Size. We had a couple of UN people there, but, but 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 the challenge on the table, it's still unresolved, is what should the Drucker School of Management's voice be in this discussion around sustainable development? Because my personal view is, without the private sector on board, the governments probably won't get to what they're trying to do. So it's a little bit of unfinished business. We had a fantastic group of really interesting influences, you know, high-level thinking thinkers with, with well-connected, you know, trying to solve the problem of what does the private sector do and secondly what should the drugger school do and I've come away with some ideas that I want to integrate. Boy that, that's great that you're thinking on that and, and along with all of us I think we're all thinking about 
you know, the next generation of leaders that are coming up. I want to take you back to how you were framing about, you know, the, the, the development arc of a leader from being that new leader to being the entrenched kind of veteran to the senior leader who's trying to facilitate the next generation. Thinking about that new leader, what advice would you give them, you know, your students that are coming up? They're that new leader. They're in that role. They're emerging. What do they need to do to advance their careers? That's really good advice. I'm, I'm thinking Patley's a dean, Patley's a mother, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Can't help that. Like, yeah, I know, my, my kids are that age. I, I think, you know, one of the tough things for younger people is, is to learn the lesson of patience. And and I was probably out on my bicycle riding my bike when my father taught the lesson of patience. I'm not the most patient person in the world, believe me. So I, I think the passage of time has taught me. But, but I think, you know, a lot of... Being effective as a leader is, is having you know things that we can draw on to make sense of what's going on in the world. And when we start out, you know, we have principles and we have training and we're smart and we're educated and we're perhaps idealistic. I don't want to lose the idealism because we get it beaten out of us a little bit as we get older. But yeah. but but I I think just to, to to always ask good questions and 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 you know don't forget the training you've had because I think employers don't do a good job actually at the, the the training, the, the academic training to, to encourage some of our best and brightest minds to help solve organisation problems. But I think we need patience. But I also think that our younger leaders in, in, in making need to be willing to tag along and, and shadow and, and observe and ask good questions and not give up, you know, not give up on, on the, the lessons that they've learned in their own lives already. But also the advice that was given me, and I don't do this in a systematic way, but I hold on to the advice, is every six months you should put yourself into a new situation. Now, there's a little bit of kind of interesting insight there because I'm not an advocate for being scatty and jumping around in our careers when we're starting but I get that that happens a little bit that someone told me that the 20s are called the trying 20s because we try out lots of different things and and I think to an extent it's true but I think to be bold and be brave just as we should be as leaders we always have to be bold leadership's about placing our bets and, and, and making choices but I think as individuals we should be bold and willing to try something new now what does that mean it might mean that there's a project team happening over somewhere else within the organization that's just really interesting and I want to be part of that just to learn what's going on in that side of the business or it could be volunteering in the community to do something bold and different that just we're not quite sure always where these things lead and you know I'm incredibly fatalistic about the choices we make we don't always know why we're doing things but they often lead to really interesting things so that would be you know the kind of advice is to never stop learning and it doesn't mean by taking courses or you know I mean learning takes place in different ways take courses of course but just to put yourself into situations where you're exposing yourself your mind your thought practices your behaviors to new things and, and take from them what you will yeah you know elevating that thought a little bit higher right so we, we've got our young students who are coming up who are going to be the leaders of the future and and at the same time too it seems like there's a profound amount of change and disruption that's happening within our organizations now and that that's the call to leadership there too 
that's happening. So kind of up and down this whole continuum that's going on. If I add to that, so, so my, in my role, you know, coming into my role as the dean and thinking I knew our business, I actually have a personal goal of speaking to six influencers a day. Now, I don't quite get there. Sometimes it's mm. four, but I consider it's a day well spent if I'm getting myself in front of people and listening, asking questions and listening, because our worlds have been disrupted. And, and you know, I love people. That's probably why I'm in marketing. I love asking questions. I observe human behavior. But I, I think as leaders, we're in a really dangerous position if we ever think we know everything. And, and I think, you know, however we do it, we have to listen, we have to read, we have to get out in front of people, we need to ask questions. But more importantly, we need to be really good listeners and we need to allow ourselves to undo the, the mental models we have in our minds of what we believe right and wrong is. Mm. Hey, if I were to check the corner of your desk, there's probably some books there because I know you're an avid researcher, <laughs> reader. <laughs> well, yeah. What's some of the stuff that you're reading now? Jenny to kind of keep up with things. Yeah, I, I, my biggest regret right now is I'm not reading enough for pleasure. But, but the books that I'm reading, um, th there are a few that that have gravitated toward me. This, my favourite book at the moment is Joe Masarello's book called The Lost Art of Management. Mm -hmm. Now, Joe is one of my great colleagues. He's a great friend. He's an emeritus professor here, and um, I, I read that because we're in a liberal arts environment, and I don't come from a liberal arts training. You see and just does things a bit differently. So for the longest time, we would say management is a liberal art, and I go, yeah, 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 yeah. But I actually don't know what it means. <laughs> and actually, it turns out that even Draco, who said management is liberal, he didn't know what But Joe, Joe wrote a book on management as a liberal art, and he traces the liberal arts tradition, and he traces the tradition of management, and he shows how they come together. So that, to me, has been a great book. Um, the other book that I read uh, that I... Uh, yeah, have just about finished actually. It's Mintzberg's book called Managers Not MBAs. And he's he's a Canadian academic. He's fantastic. He questions what an, an MBA is and who should get an MBA and should young people get MBAs. So he talks about management and leadership. I have to admit I book, bought the book um, about the golden passport about Harvard. Because, <laughs> 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 I mean, you know, brands like Harvard, we envy brands like Harvard. You know, they, they, they're big and they're getting bigger and bigger and bigger and we get kind of hammered by Harvard yeah. so I bought the book about the golden heart passport and then I also bought the book about what Harvard doesn't teach you I've also been dipping in and out. I always dip in and out of, of Drucker's books but the one I've been reading most recently is Drucker on Asia and yeah. I'm reading that because I went to Japan I hate to admit for the first time I, I, I travel a lot I've never been to Japan and I couldn't quite and, and we're named after Masatoshi Ito Yes, and 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 Draka has a great uh, relationship with all things Japan, and I went there for the first time, and I wanted to understand it more deeply. So I bought bought Draka's book on on um, Amazon, Draka on Asia, and also a book from the Seattle Art Museum because Draka has a senso uh, collection of Japanese art, and he wrote an essay in this book when they did an exhibition of his art, and I wanted to understand what it was that Draka saw in Japan that I I now believe to be true, heavily influenced the work he did on management, actually. So so I, I wish I could say that I'm reading one book and I'm kind of you know going from start to finish, but I tend to have a few things like, you're right, so the way you ask the question, absolutely right. There's a hundred different things going on at the minute, but they're the books that are my go-tos right now that I take um, a, you know, good insight and good advice from. 
Yeah, no, you know, I, I just hear that market researcher happening there, you know, the span <laughs> of the different things that you're reading. You yeah. know, I, I share that appetite too, just wanting to read white papers and research. And I have kind of my, some of my go-to places that I like to go to. Bain and Company, I just absolutely yeah. love the research and financial services that they're doing for us. It's such I, good stuff. I think at different times, I, when I was, you know, doing more hardcore research for publishing purposes, you know, there'll be, a, I always, I talk about like, it's like an eagle circling prey, you know, you end up eating the same roadkill. <laughs> but, but, yeah, but and, and so right now, that, that's my pile of stuff that I'm eating, you know, and, um, and, and then there'll be another pile at a different time. But they're the things that I find the answers to the questions I'm looking for in those, in those volumes. Yeah. Well, I can't think of a job that, has uh, higher expectations around it, Jenny, than you, than a school with that kind of story tradition. And as an alumni, you know, we're all looking anxiously at all the good things you're doing and rooting for you. No, it's it's going to be amazing. But it does require an awful lot of energy. I think you and I, just before we went on the air here, we're talking about that you just came back from, from New York. So thank you for, you know, uh, you know, traveling and then still being up for this interview. So thank you very much for that. But thinking about energy, how do you recharge yourself? What are the same things you do when you get away from the office? <laughs> That's a really good question. So, so it's a good question. I'm going to give you multiple answers. So, so this is a job that that I now understand what drinking from the fire hydrant means. Okay. And um, and I, to go back to something you and I have talked about, I take the responsibility of leading the drafter school very seriously. And when I took when I came to the drafter school, my father, gave, who's 80, he gave me his entire collection of Drucker books and he said that I attribute my career success to Drucker's work and I've heard that over and over again in this job so I take the responsibility seriously but how do I recharge so a lot of different things you know firstly I'm first and foremost a mother and and I love my boys they're, they're 22 and 25 and you know I thought it would be easy raising adult children but I think I told my husband at Christmas time I wanted to give them both back so, <laughs> I'm not sure what that means <laughs> But, but I will drop everything for my kids, and I get a huge recharge. If I, I, I love my kids, and I have wonderful conversations with them on the phone. And my best conversations are when we chuckle, chuckle together. You know, we have a good laugh, and we, we I, I just come away with a huge face, you know, smile on my face. And when they're having a bad day, you know, there's every chance that I have to really um, find inner strength to cope with the stuff that's going on at work. I also get a tremendous recharge from the ocean. I, I, I think I've got salt water in my veins my ancestors were boat builders as were my husband's actually so I, I i walk the beach i don't do it enough but my husband who's a great he's my my business advisor we call him and and the cook and the cleaner and all those things but we try really hard to get to the beach every four to six weeks i wish we could do it more frequently and i walk the beach and we walk for three and four hours and and we just walk and we talk and that's my place i also i float in the ocean not not the california coast because i find the water too cold but in, in, in December I'm going to visit our oldest son we're going together to visit our oldest son in New Zealand and we're actually going by Fiji and I did I just define my holidays by how good the floating is in the ocean so I'll tell you when I see what, what Fiji's like for floating I love a good game of rugby so I, I I'm, I'm a bit of a mad woman when I watch rugby and <laughs> I was fortunate to be in the UK um a couple of weeks ago where the Lions were touring New Zealand, so some of the, the listeners will also understand what I'm talking about. And I was in Cardiff at a hotel at 7.30 in the morning because of the time different, 
difference. And the Lions actually beat the All Blacks, and that was good. That was good for the game of rugby. If you follow rugby, New Zealand needs to get beaten because they're just too good. And the Lions, the Welsh, I mean, if, if anyone knows well, if the Welsh listeners, if anyone knows the Welsh, they're as crazy about rugby as the, the Kiwis are. So I was in a hotel with a bunch of Lions fans from Wales watching them beat the All Blacks, and it was really good. Um, and I like to travel. So I travel a lot with my, my job, but when I can, I add a couple of days. And, for example, we were in the UK recently. My husband travelled with me. We added some days. And, you know, we went walking in the countryside, walking at the ocean, you know, having a few pints of beer. And so I try really hard. I go hard and fast, but I'm very, very self-aware uh, that I do go hard and fast. And I make sure that I carve out some meaningful time to do, you know, floating in the ocean walking the English, English countryside, watching a good game of rugby, hanging out with my kids. I try. I, none of us have this perfected, I'm sure of it, but um, I try my best. <laughs> Jenny, it's the reason why um, our, our friendship flourishes. You have an appetite for life like I do, you know? I mean, just listen to the things you did to recharge. I mean, go to the beach, take a walk, be in the water, watch rugby, travel the world, enjoy a good beer. I mean, all the good things that life has to offer, and you're going to you're going to soak them all up. I want to be respectful of our time, um, but before we go, is there anything for our listeners that you'd like to communicate about leadership or, or just what you're doing at the Drucker School? I, I think about I think about people a lot. I have a deep sense of, of care and concern about humanity, and. I know that mental health is an issue that's getting on our radars a lot, and I'm really actually pleased to see that. You know, the way I look at people, if someone had a broken arm, it's easy to see they've got a broken arm. If someone's in a wheelchair, it may be obvious or not obvious, but you get that someone's got a physical ailment that leads them to a wheelchair. But with mental health, it's not so much. And I look at people around me, and I think that we all should be really careful and, and cautious about our, our quick-to-judge tendency. When I see someone now, I don't know. I don't know anything about them. I don't know what struggles they're having in their day. I don't know. I don't know whether they've got personal circumstances that are difficult either for themselves or their immediate family. So I, I think, you know, my mantra in life, what I try and live by, is that people are, we're all in this journey together. You know, we're all trying to find purpose and happiness. And I think as leaders of organizations, we still have businesses to run, but I do think we have an obligation to treat people well. And to, to find ways to allow people to flourish and that comes in all sorts of different shapes and sizes but I, I think we've lost a little bit of that and I actually think that we, we need to get back to some basics about pe treating people well I so agree with that That that's it. thanks for sharing that and that's part of what this show is about right leaders to you know pull up occasionally and listen to other leaders talk about you know the, the idea of um, helping others, helping our organizations thrive and that those things can happen together you know kind of at one time and and you talk about and are helping us and helping the, the future leaders, you know, understand and know that too. You know, so in closing, Jenny, hey, thank you so much for taking time to be with us. We know how busy your schedule is, but we also know how passionate you are about sharing your thoughts on leadership and, and the good things that are happening at the Drucker School. So thank you very much for being here today. Thank you, John. It's just been a privilege and a pleasure. I love working with you and it's just, it's been a great honor to, to um, work with you on this podcast. Thank you very much. Hey, thank you. And to our listeners, until next time. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to this episode of the BigCast C-Suite with John Janclays. To learn more or connect with John and the CEO Corner, please visit theceocorner.com. 
and we always welcome you to join in on our conversation. You can connect with the BigCast Network directly by tweeting us at BigFintech, emailing us at info at big-fintech.com, or visiting our website at bigfintechmedia.com.